0: Hello, and welcome to the Arch-Left Archive podcast. I'm Angus Storey, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we'll be talking to Danny Morrison. Danny is a writer and Republican political activist from West Belfast. He was National Director of Publicity for Sinn Féin in the 1980s, and editor first of the Sinn Féin paper Republican News in Belfast, and then of Unfoblooked when the two papers were merged. He's the author of several fiction and non-fiction works, he is also secretary of the Bobby Sands Trust and was chair of the West Belfast Festival, uh, Fell on Fubble until 2014. Danny was spokesperson for Bobby Sands during the 1981 hunger strikes and subsequently called for a dual strategy of armed struggle and electoral politics in Sinn Féin. He was elected on an abstentionist ticket to the 1982 Northern Ireland Assembly. In 1990, he was charged and imprisoned in connection with the abduction of an IRA informer and released in 1995. The charges were later overturned in 2008. Danny's books include Then the Walls Came Down, based on his prison letters, and the novels West Belfast, On the Back of the Swallow, The Wrong Man, which he later adapted as a play, and Rudy. He is also a regular reviewer and political commentator in newspapers. We'll discuss Danny's background and analysis of the political landscape during the Troubles. his work with Sinn Féin and as editor of Republican News and on Fogart, and his work as a writer and how his creative work is informed by his experience and politics. You'll find more information on Danny's writing and regular articles on his website at dannymorrison.com. You can visit the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe if you haven't already done so. Um, and you can get in touch with us via the website uh, by email at contact at leftarchive.ie or on Twitter at IE Left Archive. So thanks again to Danny for talking to us, and thank you for listening.
1: Funnily enough, just yesterday I was up in my loft going through old material, and I found my diaries. Uh, from the late sixties and the early seventies, and I—I I found my diary from January 1971, which is 50 years ago, and all. And I actually tweeted this yesterday, I, where I state that I would like to be a writer. I want to be a writer. So I was 18 at the time, and I borrowed—I think it was 15 pounds of my sister to buy my first typewriter which I was going to use to write poems and short stories and Mm -hmm. uh, great novels. Uh, And ironically, the first thing that I wrote, which was published, was a letter to the Irish News complaining about the British Army killing of a teenager on the Falls Road. Uh, I am not sure where I would have been in terms of if the troubles had never uh, erupted. You know, would I have have gone to university? Would I become a journalist? I think I I always wanted, knowing that I always wanted to be a writer, I probably would have written a lot earlier. So I think that whatever uh, purported skills I had as a communicator, I gave to the Republican movement uh, from a very early stage. You know, I mean, somebody tweeted me yesterday, so how did that go? And I says it ended with an internment order. You know, my, my wanting to be a writer. Uh so I there's this, I have a sort of a split personality because when I write fiction I try to ensure consciously a conscious bias that I am not a plan ideology to it, uh which can spoil it. But at the same time, whatever skill I have as a as a as a writer, as a creative writer, as a fiction author. Uh, I think has also helped sharpen uh, how, over the years, I uh, approached politics, how I uh, presented politics. Uh, you know, From we were often banned from TV and radio, but I was, I mean, I was Bobby Sands' external spokesperson during the hunger strike and during the election of Alistair so I did all of the, the broadcasts, the radio and television, the election broadcasts at that time. Uh, and the only thing about this of course what, is that back in the 70s whenever I began work I, I was asked I committed internment in 73 74 mm-hmm. and I was asked by a veteran Billy McKee there was some argument involved in the previous editor did he think I would you be able to edit the Republican news and I was 22 mm-hmm. and of course very cocky I said absolutely no problem never done it before in my life but you know <laughs> I jumped at it and uh I loved the work, but I was also doing PR work with uh, Tom Hartley, who was the manager of the Belfast Republican Press Centre. This was our offices at 170 Falls Road. You know where uh, our doorman had been shot, uh, our newspaper delivery man had been shot. The Brits regularly railed it. Hand grenade was thrown through the window. Uh, the lawyers tried to put a car bomb outside it on, on one occasion, which went off across the street. I mean. And, and the building itself had mushrooms growing down the walls because, ironically, whenever they talked about the Republican propaganda machine, you know it was mm-hmm. actually uh, enabled on a shoestring, mm-hmm. and we didn't have trained public uh, relations people. Mm-hmm. We we learnt it as we went along, but back in those days, uh, although the Republican movement had uh, public spokespersons, like for example, Litmore Drum, mm-hmm. who was uh, assassinated by Loyalist dresses Doctors in the Matter Hospital in Belfast, or the late Dahi O'Connell, mm. uh, or Rory O'Bratty. We mm. did not use our own names. So if The Guardian came in to do an interview about what was going on in the ancient or the Republican movement or West Belfast, I always give uh, a false name. And it wasn't until Roy Mason, who was the British Secretary of State, a Labour Secretary of State, and who was, was also the person... Who was uh, there when the hitch blocks uh, were built? Roy Mason took umbrage at the Repo- at the at Republican News because we had got our we had got access to uh, documents and papers, and for a lot of people who were sympathetic, m- maybe civil servants or journalists, would give us material which I, w- I would obviously publish because they could sue they elect but I I didn't even own a house so they couldn't take anything (laughs) off me but we got our hands on the British Queen's uh, itinerary to the north and uh, we published it on the front page and Roy Mason took exception to this and an order went out to close down Republican news so our offices were continually raided uh, the printers was raided the paper was seized and this happened over a period of months. And then in April 1978, there was a huge raid. And they arrested uh, Tom Hartley. They arrested the officer board of Belfast Sinn mm-hmm. And they arrested the editorial staff of Republican News. I wasn't at home, so I wasn't mm-hmm. arrested. So I was on the run editing uh, the paper. They also arrested, by the way, the publisher of the paper, who was uh, Gary Kennedy from Lurgan, mm-hmm. a member of the SDLP, and they charged him with IRA membership and mm-hmm. put him in criminal jail. He was just a, a businessman. Uh, that was his sole uh, interest mm-hmm. in, in, in the arrangement between us. So then I was—I got arrested. Jerry Adams had been in jail. And the day he got out, he was given a press conference. And I went through the back door of a hotel to secretly meet him. Mm-hmm. Uh, little known that undercover people were following a friend of mine, Jim Gibney. Uh, and when they saw Jim, and they saw me, they decided to come after me. So I was arrested, charged with conspiracy and IRA membership, and I defended myself in court, and eventually those charges collapsed, and Mm. everybody that was also charged uh, got out. And it was then I decided, well, since they'd flushed me out and charged me in court, that's whenever I started to use my own name. So from 1979 onwards, I became publicly identified, especially in January, after January 1979. With the mer- the merger of Republican New Zealand block, mm-hmm. so publicly that's whenever I came out in in 1979, and that, also that was the year that I became the national director of publicity uh, for Sinn Féin. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, over the years, I, I think again it's ironic because when we were being interviewed, regardless of who who it was by, uh, we were always treated in a hostile way. Mm-hmm. And this actually forced us to hone our communication skills, almost to the extent where instinctively I could anticipate what question was coming next. And uh, I remember when Conor Cruz O'Brien was Minister of Posts and Telegraphs and responsible for Section 31, the -hmm. broadcasting ban on uh, Sinn Féin by RTE, journalists actually went to him and made the argument. Look, let us at let us at Adams and Morrison. We take them asunder, and he says, "You must be joking." He says, "They would eat you (laughs) up and spit you out." And I mean, he was uh, that was his that was his uh, argument for keeping us off the air. In other words, that we were successful, Uh, and no matter what arguments we were put 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 up against us, we could explain the conflict, and we could put it in a context in which the vast majority of the people in the twenty six counties. We're not getting. Because, of course, back then, we had no satellite TV, you no know, cable TV, two channels. RT had a monopoly on radio and television broadcasting, and our voices weren't heard. Mm-hmm. So this threw up a ridiculous situation. You know, like when Owen Caron, who was Bobby Sands' election agent after Bobby's death, and in the second by-election from Ireland, South Rome, we put forward Owen. Mm-hmm. And Owen won. But RT interviews the mm-hmm. loser, Ken McGuinness, former major in the Ulster Defence Regiment. Uh, similarly, uh, because of the ban on Sinn Fein, when Jerry Adams was shot, Archie, if they wanted, could have interviewed the people who shot him, but not Jerry Adams. Mm. And you had all this distortion down the years led to a situation where the IRA were the, the bodies. If we, can't, if we can't hear Sinn Féin's voices, Republican voices, they must be really sinister. Uh, poor Unionists, you know, they were misunderstood. Uh, they were they became the victims. And the British Army and the British government were the people in the middle. They were trying to sort it out. Uh, they were the peacekeepers. And it was a complete and absolute distortion of the reality of life in Divis Flats, in South Armagh, in Tyrone, in the Bogside, in Fermanagh, in Balaghy. There was two... Our experience was never depicted in the media in the South uh, to an extent that would allow people to understand what was going on and the parallels that were going on. And you had the situation where uh, Dublin governments, very early on, decided that it was in their interests to maintain the status quo, and that meant demonization publicism, demonised Sinn Féin. And yet here we were in a situation, in a situation where if you, Frank Gallagher, who was the first editor of the Irish Press in the 1930s, wrote a book called The Indivisible Island about partition. And he came up with this very simple statement which is so true. He says six counties were sacrificed so that 26 could have their freedom. And that has been the way it has been Ever, ever since to the extent now, the amount of offence that is caused by Simon Coveney and others in the Irish government, where they go on television and they talk about Ireland this and Ireland that, and they're talking about the twenty-six counties, and then they say Ireland and Northern Ireland, you know, having having themselves prospered and thrived, as a result of IRA men and women fighting the War or the War of Independence, going to jail, down on hunger strike, getting shot in the streets, getting executed. Though that, all of that effort and that sacrifice was laid down because at that time, of course, the IRA was fighting in the north as well, what became known as, as, as the state of Northern Ireland. Mm. And they were all fighting for the same thing. And they were all fighting because they had attempted constitutionally to achieve peacefully home rule, which wasn't a sovereign state. Mm-hmm. It, home rule was uh, basically devolution that Scotland mm-hmm. has, that Wales has. And that's they were promised that. The, national, the Irish people were promised that. And on its third attempt, the third home rule bill, uh, in, in 19, uh, it was eventually passed in 1914. But in the run-up to that bill, it was thwarted. The democratic wishes of Westminster and the will of the Irish people was thwarted by the threat of civil war, by unionists setting up the first paramilitary, Fife's paramilitary army of the twentieth century, the Ulster Volunteer Force, uh, by the, 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 the threatening the, the whole, the threatening civil war in Ireland unless the whole, the whole of Ireland uh, did not get home rule. And what's interesting here is that the Ulster Unionist Party, I mean it used to be the Irish Unionist Association, I think was the proper name of it, unionists, business people in unionism, the big large landowners, the Protestant ascendancy, had no problem with the United Ireland as long as they were in control of it. And what we see is that with the extension of the franchise throughout the 19th century, and the establishment, for example, of county councils in the 1880s, 1880s and 1880s, it's then suddenly that the unionists realise, hold on a minute, we're going to lose our uh, power here But then, if this democratic, this enfranchisement of people uh, continues. And it's then that the idea uh, forms around Ulster, Ulster uh, resisting, etc., and Ulster being a threat that would keep, Home rule out of out of Ireland completely. So this business that uh, it's what I'm trying to say is that this trend, this anti-democratic trend within the hierarchy of unionism, Mm. persisted right throughout the 20th century. So that at the time of partition, when we were sacrificed, you know, we were we were a majority, part of a majority in our own country, and then we're an artificial minority. And had the unionists at that stage, when they were handed power, shown any generosity or attempted integration or attempted friendship, then we don't know if the outcome would have been different. All that we do know is what happened, is that they immediately began redrawing boundaries. They immediately did away with proportional representation. They immediately created from the RIC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the B spicels, the A spicels and the C spicels. They located all industry in unionist areas. Uh, They refused to build houses in nationalist areas. So that even though we were this artificial minority, we made up over 60% of the people who immigrated, who went to England, Australia, who went to North America. Our elected representatives occasionally try to make the system work, so they went into the Belfast Parliament, and then when Stormont was built in 1932, they went into Stormont. And over a period of 50 years, they couldn't introduce one single piece of legislation on housing, on health, on employment, on the location of industry, nothing. For 50 years, the only piece of legislation that the entire niceness community had a saying in the Northern Parliament was an act for the protection of wild ducks. And that's the extent of what we were allowed to do. When I was a kid, lived down the Falls Road, the Orange Order still marched on the Falls Road. They came up Broadway, turned onto the Falls Road, they put red, white and blue bunting across the road, they played God Save the Queen, And they marched into the church, and then they came out again after a service, and we stood there, didn't throw a stone, but we were vanquished. We were humiliated. We weren't allowed on St Patrick's Day to march into Belfast. We weren't allowed to go go past Devon Street. And when, in 1866, you know, whenever the, the south of Ireland was celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising, and we tried to do that in West Belfast. The government up here stopped all public transport, buses and trains from coming into Belfast to minimise the numbers. And then immediately after we celebrated on the Falls Road, Loyalists killed two people. Uh, they killed uh, Louis Scullion in Clonard Street and they killed uh, Peter Ward, who I later lived next door to his mother. He was 17 years of age. So... We paid for partition, and we continued to pay for it. And when we protested, using the example of the Black Civil Rights Movement in North America, uh, we were beaten into the ground. And lots of people were killed before the IRA reorganised and fired and killed. The first British soldier, by the way, wasn't killed until February 1971. In the two years prior to that, British Army and the RUC had been killing people. And if you look in the media at the time, they don't use the word violence. Violence only begins when the IRA fires the first ship. And we've had to live this duplicity and the hypocrisies. And it has suited particularly successive Irish governments and the Irish establishment to allow the the picture to be painted that it's a fault of the IRA. And it goes back further than that. It's... British interference in our affairs has distorted the political landscape. They were the ones who paid for, armed the Loyalists, protected the Loyalists and Stormont for as long as possible until after Bloody Sunday it became impossible to do so. But even at that, and people need to remember this. The British government itself was involved not just in the in Bloody Sunday, but in Secretly arming and running the loyalist paramilitaries, so whenever statisticians and historians and journalists look at the statistics of the troubles and they say, "Oh, the IRA killed so many, so that makes the IRA the culprit." There's no, you have to include amongst the killings by the British Army and the RUC the killings of loyalists who were and who were involved planting the Dublin Model and bombs, bombs and Cloners, etc., because. Sir John Stevens was sent over here to carry an investigation into collusion between loyalists and uh, the British Army, and British forces and British intelligence. We were told the report was going to be published. He was only allowed to publish 17 pages out of a 3,000 page report. But he did say that of 217 loyalists that he interviewed, only seven or eight of them were agents. We know the Brian Nelson, who was responsible for and involved in bringing in arms, uh, and this is this is an amazing story. Because they, okay, and they go back to the beginning. In 1974, the Portuguese Empire collapsed, and in Angola and Mozambique and in other places, former Portuguese colonies uh, reached out for their independence. Mm. South Africa apartheid regime invaded uh, southern Angola Mm. to try and stop the MPLA, the communist MPLA, from coming to power. Mm. Cuba agreed to help Angola and sent fighters there. Russia did not want to be officially involved, so Cuban pilots flew MiG fighters against the South African invasion forces in southern Angola. Because of the arms embargo against the apartheid regime, they could not get their hands on the technology to shoot down the MiG fighters. Mm. But via British intelligence and loyalists, they were able to uh, get technology from the, of the Blue blowpipe missile, which was produced in Unionist East Belfast. Mm. And copies of these documents were made and were being passed over to the South African government, and in return, Israel, that had invaded Beirut in 1982, and seized all the PLO weapons. These weapons ended up in Belfast, via British intelligence, Brian Nelson, the loyalists, Israel, and South Africa. And so, whenever my best friend, Kevin Brady, was killed in Milltown Cemetery, when Stone, according to his book, he was trying to kill Adams McGillis and myself, the weapon that killed uh, Kevin came from the Lebanon. Uh, similarly, whenever loyalists fired the rocket through Connolly House in West Belfast, the RPG seven that came from Beirut—that was the Israelis had seized that from the PLO—and because the Israelis were close to the South African apartheid regime, this was the triangular deal mm. in, involved. And those weapons that were brought in by British intelligence killed between th- killed up to three hundred. Innocent Catholics in the 1990s. And, uh, the, you know, the Loyalists also killed Rosely, Rosemary Nelson, the minister, as well as Pat Vanugan. And we know that the, that the, the British government, not only, the RUC suggested the Loyalists killing Pat Vanugan, mm. but when it came to his assassination, everyone involved was working for a, a state intelligence agency. Everyone involved. And it was covered up for years because... The British government cannot afford to tell the truth because the paper trail leads right back to 10 Downing Street. Mm -hmm. And that's also why they cannot prosecute senior officers that were involved in the dirty war and in provoking and promoting and prolonging the dirty war because they will turn around and say, hold on, I got that order from Mrs. Thatcher. I got that order from the Ministry of Mm Defence. And that is how corrupt and dirty the war has been. But if you're sitting in Cork or Dublin, listening to the RTE, or listening to the what all you will hear is Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin. You will never, ever hear them turning around. Look, at look, Dublin bombings. British government knows exactly what happened in the Dublin bombings. And they refused to cooperate with the official commission into it, set up by the Irish government. Did the Irish government take any action? No sorry for annoying you, London. God, we didn't mean to ask those questions. And that is the, that is the mentality. Uh, and that mentality is a dangerous mentality because, in my opinion, it pro- prolonged our conflict in the North. Mm. The British government were going to continue to search for every other type of potential uh, stick and plaster until they were forced to talk to the Republican movement. And the Irish government Encourage them and give them succour in refusing to talk. The, 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 the organisation in the North that asked for ceasefires more than any other was the IRA. Right. The IRA first ceasefire was 1971, major ceasefire in 1972, prolonged ceasefire throughout 1974 and 75. Right, yeah. I never heard of the British Army saying, oh, we need the ceasefire, or the RUC, we need the ceasefire, or the British government saying we need the ceasefire. And now we don't even have Fine Gael, Fianna Foyle recognising the peace process. They are still fighting a struggle, an old struggle against Republicans. Mm. Uh, and you see it now expressed in this hostility and this demonisation, which takes place almost weekly.
2: In in relation to Fourbrokes, that was produced in Belfast and in Dublin, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, well, you see, Republican. What happened was that uh, back in nineteen seventy, after the split, when there was all this reorganization going on, Unfulblock uh, was brought out in Dublin as the national organ of Sinn Féin.
2: Yeah,
1: Republican News was brought out at Belfast, mostly as a Belfast nice. paper. Yeah, but over the years, uh, they started out as monthly, then fortnightly, then weekly. Mm. But over the years, because we were producing Republican News basically at the coal face, mm. and we would have access to IRA statements, detail of IRA operations, which pure and Foblock would only be getting four days later. Right. Uh, so we began to outsell on Fublock. Yeah. And then the decision was taken, helped by the Brits trying to close Republican News down, mm. that it would be best if we amalgamated and produced the cream of both in the mm. one paper. And that happened in 79 on Fublock Republican News. Yeah. Uh, I was the first editor of it. And, you know, we and Reid her, who was not long out of Limerick Jail, began to write for it. John mm. had the nerve. I mean, John, I think John appeared around 79 or 80. John Hedges, he was a brilliant sub-editor. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, the, 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 during the hunger strike, mm. we were producing, we had a staff in Belfast, with an office mm. in Belfast, and some of our writers and our designer, Danny Devaney, came down to Dublin for three days a week, so they'd come down on a Tuesday. The paper would be finished literally at 5 o'clock on a Thursday morning. Right. It uh, would go straight to Leinster Express to be printed. At the same time, the plates would be sent to New York so that the Irish people could use whatever they wanted in their paper, right. which was going to print later that day. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, during the hunger strike, I mean, we our office was open for seven months in Belfast, and we slept on the on this floor in sleeping bags the seven months of the hunger strike, because we a lot of us doubled up as Sinn Féin press spokespersons as well as being writers. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it was just a brilliant job they brought out, you know, sometimes 84-page paper yeah. uh, going out to every corner of Ireland, you know, with our own vans, our own van drivers. <laughs> I mean, it was a little industry on its own. And it really annoyed the establishment. I mean, every, every Thursday afternoon, the British Embassy, a guy from the British Embassy came around to get 12 copies. Really? From <laughs> 44 Parnell Square.
2: Yeah. And did you find you were disrupted um, both sides of the border um, or more, say, in the north or in the south? I mean.
1: Well, the British Army could be quite aggressive and the RUC. And then there was mm. this campaign to undermine the paper I know it had been attacks. I mean, when I was coming out of the office in Sevastopol we'll Street one day, yeah. a, a guy at the top of the street opened fire uh, and the office had been bombed, of course, on many occasions. And it was the same office where uh, an IUC man came in and shot dead three people on the ground That's floor. Right. yeah he came in and asked for Jerry Adams and yeah. Jerry Adams, his office was above the this this office on the ground floor. Mm. Uh, you know, that the, the, I mean, well, I'll give you one example. Desi O'Malley, who was either still in Fianna Fáil or maybe had moved to the PD, there was an mm. argument going on in Leinster House. And during the debate, he turned around and says, let's face it, the IRA called the shots. Right. So, so we decided to put on the front page, IRA calls the shots. The Spicer branch arrested one of our p- paper sellers in Cork mm. and charged him with IRA membership on the basis of having a poster of that front page, and he did three years in jail. You know, that's the yeah. type of thing. There was this ongoing censorship. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and then there was also ongoing rows over extradition as well. Mm. There was a famous incident when they were uh, trying to arrest Evelyn Glenholmes mm. when one of the extradition warrants had expired and they followed her around Dublin. The guards hijacked lorries to block roads to try and hold on to her to, to send her to England. And in fact, Outside British home stores, the guards fired over my head. The guard and detective played close guitar opened opened fire, and I was challenging him. Uh, you know, it's all sorts of, when you're talking about the Yeah, I mean, in the state, I mean, the guards were highly, not, not necessarily the ordinary guard, mm. but the, the, the special branch of the detectives were, were pretty vindictive. Mm. I was at, I remember uh, challenging two of them in a bar at the All-Ireland Fla mm. down in, in stool. And later on that night, I was coming along the street and there was the two of them coming down the street and mm. they just punched me in the stomach and threw me into a shop window. Mm. Uh, so it was all, yes, there was that going on. But then, mm. I mean, from their point of view, um, from, from their mindset, you know, we, we were upsetting the, the apple. We were disturbing the stability Status of point. their little state, you know.
2: How much influence. Did you get from other publications during that time, or did you tend to kind of go your own path? I mean, like for instance, it moved from the green and harp masthead in the late 70s through to the red masthead. Was there a sense of you were taking on influences from other areas?
1: Well, I mean, I think it was the the suggested change of color came from McTimothy. It didn't matter to me because I was colorblind and I didn't know what color it was. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, there was, I mean, there was, yes. I mean, we had editorial meetings where people would say we should be doing this, we should be doing that, churning out new ideas. You know, we started to review uh, plays as and as, uh, 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 non or sorry, fiction as well as as fiction And of yeah. course, we had a we had our own uh, uh, cartoonist, Brad Moore. Yeah. comic uh, cartoons, which were really is. cutting and yeah. uh, well, you know, really advanced uh, at that stage. Uh, you know, in terms of the, in terms of their sarcasm and yeah. and, and his, his, his black humour. And also we had John McGuffin, uh, who's a former member of PD, you know, mm-hmm. he looked the the Brigadier Column. Yeah. Where every week he would he be naming all these cops and Brits that had been suspended or suspected of being involved in loyalist activities, but he had read in a way from that he was appalled that this was happening to his men. Right. You know, the state should leave them alone. You know they're only really doing their duty, killing Catholics. You know, but right. yeah, it's really black, black, black humour.
2: And you did you did one column yourself, didn't you? Briefly, I think in the mid eighties, is that right? Um, Liam o. column. That's I it. Did. After
1: yeah. after Mick Timothy died, and uh, had he had he had a, he had, uh, a column called uh, I think it was Ka- the Kevin Burke column or Kevin at the back. So I did the Liam o. column. Right. for a while, uh, for maybe two years.
2: Do you think um, with Unfoblix in the 80s in particular, was there a sense of trying to lay the ground for a broader engagement, not just obviously politically or covering the conflict itself, but in terms of the cultural angles as well in, in this area as well? Was that something that when you became editor you felt conscious of or was that something oh, well, that, that developed, would you say?
0: No, no, no,
1: no. That was a conscious decision. Uh I mean we back in the seventies, it's interesting here how it developed. During this, the IRA ceasefire in nineteen seventy-five, hmm. uh in order to minimize conflict, there were a number of what were called truce incident centers set up. And they, they had a hotline to the NIO. So for example, if the British Army came into the falls and raiding houses or open fire on somebody. There would be a way of phoning up the NIO and complaining. Similarly, yeah. if they, they would phone up our office and say, we we strongly suspect there was an IRA active service unit moving weapons at and Murphy, right? Blah, blah, blah. Mm. Now, when that collapsed, of course, the British government came down heavy on top of the Republican movement. Mm. But what we did with these truce incident centers is that we converted them into advice centers. And we trained up people on social security and on housing and on the rules for housing applications. And we were also involved in the demolish Divas campaign uh, around uh, Divas Flats, but we took a conscious decision that we needed to cover trade union activity we needed to cover you know the situation on, on in poor rural areas and we also needed to uh, quite you know have an international solidarity position so we would have we would have writers from south africa we were actually, one of our officers was from Argentina. Mm. Uh, uh who had been who had to flee argentina during the, the the military dictatorship and i remember also opening up the pages for discussion and we had like on feminism i mean we called for divorce before anybody else we were covering gay rights before anybody else mm. we had i remember big like, weeks and weeks and weeks uh, of 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 letters pages on the women's room by marilyn french and uh, mm. you know so we were involved in all of these sort of debates probably ahead of Sinn Féin, in a way. Mm. I mean, there was more... Uh, but that that, that that was OK. I mean, b- back then, you know, Sinn Féin was, uh, was, was out-supporting prisoners, out-supporting uh, marches and campaigns, etc., and hadn't fully developed into an electoral party mm. uh, because we were also, at, at that stage, we were an abstentionist policy party mm. in the 26 counties. And I suppose... The fertilisation of all of these ideas, and listening to people, and churning it out, and you know, go to the pub after a, a meeting and talking more about it and developing ideas, it became quite clear to me. Uh, I, I can't put my finger on it, but it became quite clear to me that this theological position that the Republican movement had about the illegitimacy of the twenty-six county
0: state
1: mm. uh, was all well and good theologically. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that unlike the North where the licensed community was completely alienated from the state, majority of people in 26 counties considered the institutions of the state as legitimate. Mm. And unless we engage with that reality, yeah. we were not going to develop. Now, that meant overthrowing, you know, a very uh, sacrosanct principle on abstentionism mm. with regards to Linster House. Uh, and that was the first... well. I, if I go step step back a bit, uh, I mean we were quite hostile to electoral engagements as well, and that and and the whole problem of constitutional politics is mm-hmm. that the history of the Republican movement is riddled with examples, including from the officials in 1969-70, mm-hmm. whenever they wanted to drop abstentions, not just towards Westminster House, but yeah. which would have been anathema to me Westminster and also to. Stormont at Mm. that stage, which is still run by the exclusively one-party state, Ulster Unionist Party. So, the the election of Bobby Sands in Fermanagh South to we missed out also. Mm. uh, Because we had a policy of not contesting local government elections.
0: Mm.
1: Bobby Sands was elected on the 9th of April, but a month later there was going to be local government elections in the north, from which our constitution Forbid us to participate in, yeah. but there was a huge voter, there. so therefore you saw you saw councillors from the Irish Independence Party getting elected, uh, mm. Fergus O'Hare from the PD in West Belfast, two PDs in West Belfast, two IRSPs in West Belfast. So we realised here, you know, a huge potential here. And I'll tell you something else: I had always been working under the assumption that the SDLP were doing constituency work.
0: Hmm.
1: And it wasn't until, like, for example, I, I stood in Mid-Ulster and I got elected to the assembly in Mid-Ulster
2: yeah.
1: uh, uh, back in the 80s. As soon as we, as soon as we started opening these advice centres, we realised the SLB would be doing nothing <laughs> because they had a monopoly. There was no competition. They could do what they like. They were getting elected in perpetuity. And uh, so we, we 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 opened up a you know we were a real opposition alternative for the nicest community, mm-hmm. but also of course there was a problem, and that I knew I experienced this when I was at Cammison, that I remember a, a woman in Staban buying home houses she had said, "and I love to see you on TV and radio, you know, I I you know you really articulate and defend what we stand for, it. but son, I cannot stand those bombs, and mm-hmm. I will not be voting for you." So it was quite obvious that that you know that there was a ceiling on the support for Sinn Féin as long as the IRA's armed struggle uh, was was taking place. Hmm. Now, of course, all of these battles uh, and debates we try to cover in unfublocked, hmm. especially in the abstances debate, because we knew we knew how sensitive it was to the likes of Rory O'Brady, and Dave O'Connell, and hmm. others, and we were hoping there would be no split. Then mm. that they would stay in and go with the majority, but it was too much for for old Rory and and for what he had stood for and believed for for decades. Mm. But we had to sustain that loss uh, in, in order to to build the party, and it was many years before Kevin O'Quillan uh, got elected for yeah. to, for Kevin Munnan. But when you look at that extraordinary journey from Bobby Sands being elected MP for Monasterevin. 40 mm. years ago this year to the, the, the extraordinary situation where in a poll in today's Belfast Telegraph, Sinn Féin is the largest party in the North. Yeah, And if there was an election tomorrow, Michelle O'Neill would be First Minister in the North. Yeah. Uh, and if you go back when the UUP, the DUP, wouldn't sit in the studios with us, mm. when our councillors got up to speak in the City Hall, they mm. spread air fresheners at them or they blew horns, to drown them out. Uh, and by the way, when they refused to sit in the studios with us, the studios went along with it. They they put us out, even if there was no Section 31 in the North. So we've had, uh, you know, a, a, a tough battle and a tough struggle on our hands. But we're also, you know, have been involved in our, our political development, our radicalisation. You know, the radicalisation is originally there when you read Conley or, mm. or Liam Mellows. You know, it's, it's there. It's already, they've already experienced it. They've already handled it. They've already set down principles which one can uh, adopt and amend and continue to use. You know, Liam Mellows uh, predicted what would happen in partition in the free state, how it would develop, how it would become, you know, uh, this petty bourgeois, inward-looking uh, state. And Connolly, of course, got it right. Carnival of Reaction. That's how he described how a partition would affect the North and how the, the unionists uh, would behave, and they, they got it right. So using and building on that, I mean, I remember, strangely enough, it, it didn't come from Republicans, but I had uh, uh, Tom Hayden, who was a nice uh, uh, American radical student back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. He, was in, he was involved in, in 68, in uh, whenever the the riots took place the police riots took place at the democratic convention and he was involved in the anti-war movement he he was over here in 1976 and he'd been to vietnam several times and of course his his wife jane fonda had been demonized as hanoi jane by the right right wing in the states and he was talking about struggle and he was actually mentioned to me antonio Gramsci. Uh, and, and how he had developed struggle, where you have, in society, you, know, you have people who are teachers, who are trade unions, who are musicians, who are young, who are old, who are pensioners, and all of these people come to think in a certain unified, cultural way, and that's a revolution in itself, which can overturn society from, from within. Not doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the storming of the Bastille, know what? So all of these ideas, you know, help fertilize uh, our development, our ideological position. My, my politics are dead simple, extremely simple. I, I want a society where wealth is moved away from the rich towards poor people, and that's it. Uh, and that and, and that means, you know, in health, education, mm. opportunity, all of those things. And that's mm. because nobody needs it Leo Tolstoy wrote a story about, you know, how much land does a man need? And this guy, the devil says, what do you want? He said, I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have that. And he runs around and it's never ending. But when he dies, all all he needs is six foot by three foot. And similarly, you know, what do wealthy people do with all their billions and their millions? It is obscene. It is gross. It is not the use. And by the way, there's no way could you or I earn that. We couldn't go out and dig roads. And be millionaires after 25 years mm. so the way wealth is generated all that has to be examined so my, my, my and, and Sinn Féin particularly in 26 countries has produced brilliant brilliant spokespersons I mean I remember young David Cullinan but he was I mean as a teenager you know coming to meetings and uh, after one meeting we did about the hunger strike uh, uh, was it in Cork or Waterford I can't remember where Mm. These people have been have been there watching and they have been uh, independent-minded enough to see through the propaganda and uh, to see through the demonisation. Another thing that I, I, I'm engaged in, and I think is very, very important, is for young people to come north. You know, go go to Ballamurphy, go, mm. go to the Glen, go to the you get your eyes opened. you hear stories that make your hair standing in the end. And you'll realise you've been told bullshit for decades uh, about the nature of this conflict. Mm-hmm. Why would why would we want war? It's our people who died. It's why people who went to jail. It's why you know women and children were orphaned. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, do, we 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 want peace. We always wanted peace, but we could never get peace because any peace that didn't involve addressing the injustices and the inequalities. Wasn't a peace, yeah. and that's and that's why until we got we, we reached a position in the 1990s where senior British Army officers went on the record saying we cannot defeat the IRA. There has to be a political solution, and to me that was quite liberating because I was in jail at the time, mm. and I knew that despite the IRA being better armed than ever, mm. uh, and despite the fact that it had enough material to probably continue fighting for 20 or 30 years, it could do so without necessarily uh, uh, increasing its negotiating muscle. Mm. So that military stalemate, from that military stalemate, and an honest admission of it, sprung the necessity for dialogue. Mm. And it was, it was as a result of that, of course, that the British government then realised that they had to talk. And that opened up the, the peace process Right up until the, the Good Friday Agreement, and uh, we have been, even though the Good Friday Agreement, I would have preferred an agreement which was much the parameters of which was much more broader. Mm. But Sinn Féin had to settle for whatever it could achieve at that stage, and the SDLP was a larger party back then, so they circumscribed the the breadth of the of the agreement. But from that there, you know, we've been able to build uh, a very mm. radical, progressive. Movement. I I remember. Uh, interestingly, a, a journalist called Ed Maloney, uh, after Jay had been Jay Adams had been out in the States several times, turned around and said, "Well, Adams is finished now. He can't go to he can't go to Cuba anymore, and he can't go to uh, the Middle East, etc." Mm-hmm. And uh, the following year, Adams is out meeting Fidel Castro. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because we can't. Even though we have comrades and friends and supporters abroad, mm. that would be the tail wagging the dog, mm. if we if we were to allow that to happen. You know, and it's interesting to see also that Adams was so recognised as an internationalist that he was one of the pallbearers at Mandela. Nelson Mandela's uh, Nelson Mandela's funeral, and he's also been out and he's met ha- Hamas and and the Palestine Liberation Organisation, etc. Uh, so I mean i I'm quite comfortable in my skin I mean i whenever I come out of prison there was a ceasefire on and I had a big decision to make in terms of what I was going to do because I mean I, mm. I got involved in the Republican movement at the time when there was an armed struggle on uh, and when I didn't see many alternatives so I mean I decided at that stage that I would prefer to concentrate my efforts into into writing but I give you Know as 30 plus years, and I'm still a Republican supporter, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I've written pieces for Infoblocked, and mm-hmm. uh, I contributed to some of the pieces during the peace process and the George Mitchell paper on mm-hmm. IRA decommission etc. And I'm a, obviously a, a, a big supporter, but uh, I mean, my role as a writer, and I like to think that my politics uh, inform. The, the color of my work, in a, in a way, uh, but without, without uh, you know, spoiling. I mean, I, I like to, re- I, I prefer to review fiction, but a lot, a lot of the, the media only want me. I like, can give you an example. Uh, I don't want to name the particular paper, you know, but mm. it's a prestigious paper. I would prefer to be re- reviewing novels for them, um, but the only thing they send me is books on international terrorism. Oh, would mm. you review that because <laughs> you're pigeonholed you see yeah uh, and that's it and I and I can't complain about that in a way because'm I'm, I'm partly the author of of, of that perception yeah. of myself
2: when when I read your writings it's obviously consume fiction yourself and literature and it's and, and Music as well, by the way, classical music. You seem to have a fascination with classical music as well, and you consume these things. And you obviously want to get it back out there again. I mean, would you say that's true? Like, you're.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I am mean, obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm reading. I mean, I have to read. I have to review books, and I'm also this year, especially. I mean, I've been involved in uh, re-editing a lot of Bobby Sands' material for the 40th anniversary of the hunger strike. We've just finished as editor and for the first time since June 1981 uh I, I, we got copies of the from the National Library where the archive is held, photographs of Bobby's uh, prison diary, and I went through it because when I last edited it, it was June nineteen eighty one and it was a very fraught circumstances where, you know, the the offices were regularly raided and paper seized mm. by the British Army mm. and uh, we had to transcribe using magnifying glasses and Then get it typed up, and then I edited it, and then we printed it. So, <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the diary is coming out, uh, but I'm also reviewing books mm. for the Irish Examiner, mm. I'm also uh, writing my own material fiction stuff. I, I've just finished editing a brilliant book which should be out in a month's time. It's called 6,000 Days, and mm. it's by Jim Jazz McCann. It's about the 17 years he served in, in jail, he's from West Belfast. He's a He's a principal of a school now. Right. But, I mean, he, he was on the blanket. He was on the escape. Uh, and it's just a brilliant, brilliant, very personal view of what it was like in the blocks, mm. uh, you know, with people like Bobby Sands and, and Joe McDonald. who Joe McDonald comes across incredibly, mm. uh, very emotionally uh, in that book. So I've just finished editing that book. And so I do a lot of a, a, a lot of stuff, but I mean, one of the pieces I, I really enjoyed writing was for Lyric FM. Mm. They asked me to write five short stories for a slot called the Quad Quarter. Right. So I was able to I was able to to get my classical music pieces in right. along with along with uh, stories. And one of the stories I told was about Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Mm. Back in when my best friend was a lad called Jimmy Quigley hmm. and uh, Jimmy was uh, shot dead during a gun battle with the British Army when he was 18. But Jimmy and I, before we went out to the dances, uh, there was a TV series on uh, called Casanova. Right. And the reason why we loved it was because there's so many scenes of naked women in it. You know, we're 17, 18 years of age hmm. and then We would we would always wait until this show was over, and it would be late for the dance. And we always had a couple of glasses of Monday's wine before we went to the dance. And uh, but the music used in Casanova starred Frank Finlay. I think Dennis Potter actually wrote it, adapted it for television. But the music used is from Vivaldi's Four Seasons.
2: Right.
1: So I I, I, that was one of the pieces. But then another another piece that I used in that, which is really sad, was uh, about a girl called Julie Statham. And her boyfriend, uh, his brother and his father, loyally burst into their shop and shot them dead in uh, just outside Duncannon. When I, This is the 1980s when I was in jail. And her and her, bro- her boyfriend Damien had been to... Paris, the previous month, and they were deeply in love. I mean, she they were eighteen years of age, and looking forward to university. And she wrote this death notice in the Dunkerin Observer, and it was heartbreaking. And she called, she called Damien. uh, You were my Claire de Lune, and a month later, her father came into her bedroom, and she killed herself. So I wrote a piece around that. And of course, each of my stories ended with a piece of classical music, and that story ended with with uh, Clair de Lune by Debussy. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, I try to combine uh, my interests mm. and get them across and encourage people to <laughs> encourage people also to to. I mean, I'm always putting up on Twitter uh, the most recent book that I've read and mm. encouraging people to, to to read particular books.
0: Do you feel that sometimes that you want to uncouple the your fiction writing from the political or? or.
1: Yes, well that's there's a uh, he died last year, Amos Oz an Israeli writer Mm. and uh, I was reading maybe his memoir and I came across a very interesting remark that he made he said, I have two pens on my desk this one is in red and this one is in black if I pick up the red pen I'm writing fiction if I pick up the black pen, I'm writing polemics. Right. And I never mix them up. <laughs> but that it's impossible to, I mean, any book that you read, I mean, you look at the recent controversy, the woke controversy, you know, where uh, people are trying to ban Gone with the Wind uh, from the syllabus in the States mm. and also To Kill a Mockingbird mm. because of its uh, depiction of, of, of black people or at least were, were one of the characters uh, so people who write at a particular time uh, the culture and the subconsciousness of that age is going to make its way into your works like for example I mentioned at the outset there the diary and I came across mm. right I also flicking through it Jimmy and I left these two birds home right. What yeah. were the crows or ravens? That's the way that was the language in 1970 71. We yeah. called girls birds. I, mean, yeah. I was appalled to see it, you
0: yeah.
1: know. <laughs> now, but if I was right, if, if you were writing uh, a novel mm. uh, about that, do you, do you suddenly now use modern terminology, mm. or do you for to be authentic, do you use the mindset? that existed at the time. And I think I would have to bow to the mindset that existed at the time and uh, be confident that to the modern year they would be able to discern, you know, yeah. what, what was going on uh, in reality. So uh, I, I probably, whatever uh, literary skills I have or literary tricks I have, probably do play a part in the polemic that I write. And how I read it, and how I depict it, and how I use logic within a particular article, uh, and at the same time, I, when I first wrote West Belfast, which is my first novel, published in 1989, hmm. I mean, people like Fintan the Irish Times, accused it of you know, sexualizing violence, and and, and 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 I actually thought that. And one of the main themes running through it was a pacifist theme from one of the the the, the, the main characters. Hmm. But I suppose as a result of that criticism and other criticisms, one is a wee bit more mindful hmm. when now writing fiction. Uh, so it's I think that criticism can be criticism can be uh, helpful. Hmm. It can be productive. It can be positive. But of course, I. I am, uh, A lot of my reviews of my work are treated ad hominem. Mm. Now, let me give you an example. In jail, I wrote a book uh, where the, the main character was gay mm. and was struggling with his sexuality and his identity. So I decided, because I know Belfast, I would write it in Belfast in the 1990s, using the geography of Belfast, mm. but the assumption being that there was peace in 1921, yes. So there's no RUC, there's no IRA, and it's but it's about this individual struggle against a conservative society which would demonise and would harm him mm-hmm. if it was aware of his true sexual orientation. So when that book was published, they gave it to Roy Foster's wife in the Irish Times, uh, what's her name I don't know can't remember her name mm. but uh, Roy, Roy Foster's wife reviews in the Ice Times and it was who does Mr. Morrison think he's kidding where are the where are the punishment squads and the men with the baseball bats right so even though she didn't even get it mm. the subject wasn't about the IRA, wasn't about the north <laughs> right yeah. but she said oh, because it's set in Belfast and I've left all these things out I've, I've censored the bad things about Republicans in Belfast. You know, so you, you have to go, you have to t- take that on board as well, the ignorance yeah. of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, I like, I like positive criticism mm-hmm. uh, because if somebody, if, if there's a flaw in a book or a piece of writing, then I hope to learn from that and improve. So you're always on that, that learning curve. But, I mean, I've got to the stage now where I'm pretty, probably always have been pretty thick-skinned, you know, It's right. probably got thicker over the over the years and uh, I can take a lot of abuse.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I can absorb quite a lot of abuse. I mean, I get abuse on Twitter, etc. And I, I just, uh, even though I, my position generally is anti-censorship, I just block because yeah. I don't have, I kind of tend to engage with a person who hates me and who has three followers, two of whom are brother and sister, you know. Yeah. Uh, I just haven't got time for that. Life is too short. You're 68, and uh, there's still things I want to do before I die. Yeah, yeah,
2: you know. Yeah, it's like being. It's. I think it's like you know. You're in a pub and somebody comes up to you and they start talking to you. I think you have a right to go away from them. You know, that kind of. Oh, way. It's. I, I, it's, I it's, <laughs> yes. it's not fair to feel you've got an obligation. Another thought that strikes me. You said earlier on, like when the. And I think you were saying this in a sense, not just of yourself, but also the Republican movement in, in general, in the 70s, because it had to finesse its message so so finely, the need to clarify the message down and down and down to get it as clear as possible. Do you think in your writing and in your approach to writing fiction, uh, has that did that have a very specific influence on you? I mean, would you have said that... When you started writing, did you find some of that mentality came in or did you try to move away from that and maybe become more florid in your writing, more descriptive or?
1: Oh no, there's no doubt about it. I mean the motivation for writing West Belfast was twofold. Mm. Uh, I-, I wanted to see if I could write. Mm. That was the first thing. To see if I could write a sustained long piece of prose. You know, mm. don't make eighty thousand words as opposed to eight hundred words or in a centre spread and full block. 2,000 to 3,000 words. Mm. So I wanted to see if I could uh, sustain a long piece of prose writing. But I was also motivated, no doubt, by the fact that I was the Director of Publicity for Sinn Féin. Mm. Uh, In my everyday life, I was defending the Republican struggle. And uh, so that obviously informed my approach to West Belfast. West Belfast uh, is uh, although there's a number of families in it and two or three main main characters, it's I was motivated by the fact to try and explain how a placid, peaceful, fairly vanquished nationalist community in West Belfast could move from that position of submissiveness from 1963 to 1973. So the book covers that 10-year period. So we see they demonstrate riots in '64. Because we dared to put out a tricolour mm. on the false Road, yeah. police come in, smashed up the building, started a six-day riot. Uh, you see the civil rights marches, the the, the, the pogroms in Belfast, which I experienced, and which friends of mine lost their lives, and friend of mine was burnt out of his home. That's that's it. So yes, the first novel, uh, the first novel uh, is certainly informed by a need to explain and maybe there's too much explaining in it, and that's a flaw with it. Mm. The second novel is the gay novel, yeah. uh, On the Back of Swallow. The third novel now, which I started in jail and finished making out, is a bit different because then I felt confident enough mm. not to feel the requirement to defend the IRA. And so it's much more objective. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a thriller set inside an IRA unit which is doing continual battle with British intelligence and undercover squads. That's about paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. paranoia. and also, I mean, I was influenced by because I really loved the I must have read it twenty times. Liam O'Flaherty's *The Informer*. Yeah. Uh, but but also uh, another a German novel, uh, Maxim Gorky, *The Life of a Useless Man*, hmm. which is about a police informer in in Russia, uh, because that the whole the whole concept of betrayal. It's fascinating uh, to me uh, because throughout history it has played such a part in undermining revolutions and in struggles. Yeah. Uh, it's a, almost a universal. There was a great quote from uh, John Berger, one of John Berger's novels, you know, what do the trees say mm. when the axe comes into the woods? They go, look, the handle is one of us, yeah. you know? It's so it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Uh so I mean that the wrong man so therefore was written yeah. with a great degree of objectivity. The extent when I adopted it for stage mm. and it was it was it was on in London and the Edinburgh Festival. But when it was all in West Belfast, a couple of my friends, former prisoners, says, here, yeah, what the hell are you doing there? I don't like the way you depicted the the Ra, you know, that really? way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, I mean, I, I don't, there's it's no holes barred.
2: Oh, it is, yeah. 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 Uh,
1: uh, Depiction, but it's quite realistic and mm. authentic. Mm. And at the same time, I wanted to see, the challenge to me was to see if I could write a book about an informer. An informer put me in jail for eight years. Yeah. If I could write a book about an informer, which was slightly sympathetic to the informer. Yeah. You know, to, to let us see the problems that he was, and the dilemmas that he yeah. faced and how he resolved them. He couldn't resolve them and he was yeah. weak etc. Yeah. Uh then my, my fourth novel uh, was an uh, adoption of a Hermann Hess novel from Hermann Hess wrote a novel called Knub,
0: mm. about
1: a, a Trump in Germany. Uh, he, he wrote it in nineteen fifteen, but it's set in nineteen oh seven and it's a dance there's only three chapters in, in the in the book. I don't know if you've read the book but it's a wonderful it. little novel. And and it's about a a promising young scholar, scholar who falls in love with a slightly older woman who breaks his heart, he can't cope with society or life thereafter, and he becomes a tramp. Right. And that's <laughs> that's Knut reviewed in a tweet, right? Right. So, So I, was, I, was, I love the story. So I decided to move to Ireland in the 1940s. And uh, my character, who's called Rudy, goes, the scenario's the same falls in love with a slightly older woman who breaks his heart, can't cope, becomes a tramp. But, of course, my, my, I, said, I another challenge I set myself was to, to make Rudy come from the unionist community, a Protestant community. So And that ends in the 1990s. Mm. So Rudy is also a witness to what's going on in Ireland mm. and trying to cope and trying to find his place in society because he travels around Ireland, but he also has an affection for the unionist community from which he came mm. and would not betray uh, but he, the people who host him are by and large Catholic people nicest, Republican people etc so that's up and then the, the next novel that I've been working on for years keeps getting put back is, is called uh, Band on the Run and uh it's, it's meant to be sort of a comic novel it's uh, about a guy who is, again, Is from the Shankill Road, married a Catholic back in 1969, lived in nice nicest West Belfast all his life, mm. wakes up one morning and tells his wife he's going to do what he always wanted to do. And she says, what's that, go back to your mother? He says, no, I'm going to form a pop band. Right? And he's <laughs> <laughs> you know, in his late 60s, and he thinks that there's a market for this around the clubs in West Belfast, amongst those on the Freems. Had the blood transfusions. You know. So he uh he, and that's the, the book is about his quest to do that. I remember telling Ronnie Doyle and he turned her, and says, Oh, it's the commitments for pensioners. <laughs> <laughs> I says I says, Well you could say that, yes. But I haven't got it finished. That's I've just serious. finished the play. I've just finished yeah. a play called The Cake Song. Right. And uh many years ago a DJ, DJ, local DJ and photographer from Downtown Radio called Bobby Hanvey mm. wrote a book called The Mental. It's a semi-autobiographical novel about his time as a psychiatric nurse in Downshire Hospital. Mm. So he gave me permission to adapt it for stage. Mm. and uh, But there wasn't enough material in the book so mine was off in a completely different direction although it's inspired by his book. So I finished that play and uh, and I wrote another play about an old people's home but there's too many actors in it and the Arts uh, Council and other bodies cannot afford stage plays which don't have more than one person in them, right? So economics is driving down art and determining culture, yeah. et cetera. You know, in this play, sitting in an old people's home. You know, there'll be about seven or eight actors, and yes. there's just no way can they be afforded. So right. I don't know what's going to sit. They can gather dust. Until really, people so, are prepared to act. People are prepared to act for nothing or pay. And, and <laughs> was, this pre,
0: was this
2: pre-COVID? I mean, like the fact there was this limitation on the number of actors, even just pre-COVID. Oh no, no, no! It's
1: just it's going back years. Really, whenever, yeah. whenever my play went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, mm-hmm. I think it cost ten thousand pounds for a month for the six actors and the latent guy and the director, a brilliant woman directing, mm-hmm. who's now considering directing my, my, my. But the play that I currently wrote called The Cake Song, mm. is uh, a one-person show. Oh, so yeah. it's, it's, it's economic. So hopefully, uh, if all goes well, it will it make be on Fell on Fubble this August, the West Belfast Festival. Mm. Uh, but it's 99% finished. Uh, and we'll be able to polish it up. We're on, we won't go on Zoom meetings to, to get it perfect for stage.
0: Have you found the last year fruitful, or I know some people kind of don't feel terribly creative when they're stuck at home for a year.
1: I've I've, I've had no problem with uh, with uh, as I said the you. I'm used to being locked up, so it's not a, it hasn't been a it hasn't been a challenge to me. But I, I can understand how it would drive many people crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can I can lose myself and work for hours on end. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe nine ten hours at a time, and uh, and then just like the flop in front of the TV
2: Fail and Fable is another aspect of your cultural work as well actually I mean you're one of the founders aren't you and are you currently chair of it at the moment no
1: no no I I give up the chair I was was chair for 11 years but I was there when it began in 1888 it was an idea proposed by Jerry Adams in response to the uh, with a number of incidents and I mean I'm sure you probably remember maybe the younger listeners don't but uh, three, yeah. three people from West Belfast, uh, uh, Sean Savage, Maria Farrell, and Don McCann, mm. were shot dead by the SAS in Gibraltar. Their funerals came back, and when we were burying them, the funeral was attacked mm. by a loyalist called Michael Stone using weapons supplied by British intelligence, as I mentioned earlier.
0: Mm.
1: And he killed a further three people and seriously injured a twenty-nine. One of the people he killed was my best friend, Kevin Brady. Mm. So at Kevin Brady's funeral, as we're coming down the Falls Road, three days after Kevin's been killed at the funeral, a mm. car speeds towards us at high speed. Mm. Two guys with long hair plain clothes. Mm. Uh, people are screaming, it's a loyalist against another. Even Eamon Malley, a local journalist, said, it's happening again, it's happening again, live on air. And uh, the car got trapped between black taxis because Kevin, my friend who had been killed, was a black taxi driver. The black taxis were there as as, as, as a court, part of the cortege as an honour to him. Car got trapped. The driver jumped out, fired shots into the air. The two of them were overpowered. They were stripped, badly beaten, taken away, and the IRA killed them. Now, when the IRA searched them, they came across. Documents on the passenger that said that he had been in, recently in Hereford. and Hereford is the village in England where the SAS are based, mm. who killed the people in Gibraltar. But there's also a village in Germany called Hereford, where the British Army, the people who are look after British Army, are also barracks are based. Apparently, this is where this guy came from. But when they when they when the when the, when the IRA had them, they thought they had two. SAS, men. Mm. Anyway, it went out across the world that West Belfast were savages mm. uh, and nobody placed it in context that there was panic, that we thought we were being attacked again. Uh, and yes, the two soldiers and the British Army, by the way, have never been able to explain what they were doing there. I mean, the funeral route was advertised. The whole rule was sealed off. They had two opportunities when people, vigilantes in front of the funeral, waved them in the side streets and they accelerated into the crowd. So as a result of that demonization, Jerry Adams says, look, we need to show the positive side of this community, the creative side of this community. So the Fell uh, on was established and had its first parade, very small parade, very modest festival in August 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's grown to be the largest community festival in Ireland. Yeah, you know, it's brilliant. So I would, yeah. I was after I came out of jail, I went back on the committee and then became uh, chair of the discussion and debates group, mm. and I handled the literary events, uh, and I, I was chair until I don't know four years ago. But it was taking up a lot of my time. It was voluntary, mm. and 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 I'm not getting any younger, and I wanted to do a lot more writing. So yeah. I left, but I still, I still handle what's the, there's an event called Scraves at the Rock mm-hmm. where we've got three writers uh, doing readings and we've had and that's a brilliant event. Uh, and we've had people like Seamus Heaney, I interviewed Seamus Heaney uh, just before he died. And mm-hmm. we've had, you know, Roddy Doyle's been to that. Pat McCabe's been to that. We've just, it's, 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 a, it's a really prestigious event as part of the festival.
2: How's that been affected by COVID? Just do, the festival. Uh, yeah. I mean Oh yeah, it's, it's
1: not it's nothing that's been happening. It was cancelled last year yeah. and it may well be cancelled this year.
2: Yeah. Any plans so for, like, It's online? been online. They've done
1: it online. Like I did I did uh, as part of Scribes this year online, I interviewed uh, three people, including the brilliant writer Coverty Madhaven, uh, who wrote a book called The Tainted about the Conic Rangers a fictional account of the Conic Rangers mutiny in mm-hmm. India back in
2: 1920 uh, mm. uh, so i interviewed her
1: and uh, several other uh, several other writers
2: yeah so everything's changed obviously covid's really made a huge change i mean mm-hmm. we were discussing this before in another podcast about like the on the political activism side it makes things very suppressed very quiet in a yeah. sense so roll on a change there anyway <laughs> that goes with well, saying. <laughs>
1: Well, I, 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 I'm I getting vaccinated next Sunday, so. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I'll be
2: able to get out more. Fingers crossed. Listen, thanks a million. Oh, best man. Take care. Thanks, thanks a lot. Very man. much appreciate it.